Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora e te whānau. welcome to Country Life, I'm Sally Murphy. And I'm Duncan Smith, great to have your company. Today we're at a vineyard with Leah, where the Monganui Harbour practically laps at the vine's edge. We've delved into the audio archives and found a gem to share with you that Carol Stiles recorded on Tai Happy's Steep Hill Country. And later, it's the final episode of A Year on the Farm, a series that Cosmo's been making with Oxford farmers Alistair and Jenna Bird. But first, to a roundup of the week's news. And the race is on to harvest the thousands of trees down during Cyclone Gabrielle. That's right. The cyclone damaged 6,500 hectares of forestry estate around Taupor and Turangi. Since then, about 40 crews have been working hard to pick up the 3.5 million cubic metres of wood that was blown over. New Zealand Forest Manager's General Manager John Hura told us they're trying to salvage as much wood as possible before it starts to deteriorate. You know, the salvage operations are a race against time. We've been fortunate to, to date that, um, you know, the, that the log quality is um, just held up pretty well, but we're going into the, uh, the hot-dry period where we can expect um, some of the wood just to deteriorate quite, quite quickly from, from now. John Hura says they're hoping the task will be done by June next year. And a South Canterbury farming family are doing their bit to feed those in need. They are. Shrimpton's Hill Herefords has donated the proceeds of one bull from their annual sale to charity Meet the Need for the last four years. That equates to about 13,000 meals. Owner of the stud, Liz McKercher, says she loves supporting the good cause. It's something that really appealed to us because we were pretty disgusted to hear the numbers of hungry New Zealanders out there. And I guess as farmers we've been lucky to have our own meat and our own veggie gardens and we've been able to um, keep going. Probably hunger's not something that we're going to suffer from. Yeah, kind of, kind of hard to believe how many mince meals. <laughs> can't can't visualise what, was it 13,000 meals or something, our um, money has helped provide for hungry New Zealanders. What a great idea. And some great news this week. Fonterra lifted its milk price forecast. It has. The midpoint is up 50 cents to $7.25 a kilogram of milk solids. Now that's due to a fall in supply and improved demand for dairy. Federated Farmers Dairy Chair Richard McIntyre says it's a welcome boost. That said, they'll also be realising that um, it's still early days in the season and there's a lot of volatility both on-farm and, and overseas. We've also got um, droughts forecast in some areas as well. So there is an expectation that it's going to be um, a little bit difficult um, farming in some regions of the country and therefore milk, milk volumes will be back a little bit. So you know, with, with that in mind, it's great to have um, potentially a higher milk price to be able to navigate through those difficult times with. Right, and the warm, dry weather could be good for some crops this summer. That's right. While farmers are facing predictions of a hot summer with trepidation, those running a Northland-based peanut trial say dry conditions will be a relief. Nut butter company Pix is running trials to see if Northland could become the home of commercially grown peanuts in Aotearoa. Last year's trial crops were wiped out by Cyclone Gabriel, so Pick's Chief Operating Officer Stuart McIntosh says an El Nino summer will be good. A little bit like the vegetable growers, I think everybody's saying we prefer hot rather than wet. Wet, you know, extreme wet. At least in a hot summer, you know, we can apply water, whereas when we had a summer like, you know, last summer just everything drowned, then that's not so good. And it was extreme, obviously, so hot is good for peanuts, yeah. This month, six hectares of peanuts will be planted around the far north in Kaipara, more than double the area planted last year. Interesting. And the Cymbidium orchid season is winding up. How did it go? 
Well, growers are actually celebrating one of the better years for export prices. New Zealand Bloom, the country's largest flower exporting company, says prices have been up to 20% higher than last year. Managing Director David Ballard told us China has performed strongly this year. I was a little bit surprised. It certainly went stronger than we expected. I guess the response to the reduced volume was more significant than, than we expected. It managed... It enabled us to shorten up some markets that have perhaps been oversupplied like Japan in recent years and those prices really lifted up strongly as a result. Cymbidium orchids are the mainstay of New Zealand's flower export industry which is worth about $20 million each year. Right, and for our listeners who are in the horticulture sector, a new robot has just been launched which could give them a hand. Yes, the new multi-use autonomous vehicle, which can save on labour costs and improve chemical applications, has just been launched to the market. Tauranga-based Robotics Plus showcased Prosper, a robotic machine for use in apple orchards and vineyards at a Californian event dedicated to agricultural robotics. Chief Executive Steve Saunders explains how Prosper runs on hybrid technology, which has advantages over fully electric tractors. We've really got the benefits of full electric drive systems, but we power that with a diesel generator. So we're still seeing up to 72% reductions in fuel use, but what we're getting out of that is longer field operational activity. If you look at something like the Monarch, it is a full electric, but when as soon as you put a large implement or draw a lot of power to, to power an implement, you only get so many operational hours before you have to recharge that battery, and then you have to recharge that battery for you know, anywhere from five to eight hours, whereas hybrid technology on a 33-gallon tank of diesel, we can operate for 24 hours. And if you're after a Prosper, they cost US dollars so not a small investment, but Robotics Plus already has orders for 20 of the machines. R2-D2, eat your heart out. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. In the past five years, Kim Gilkerson and her husband Graham have transformed a languishing vineyard into an award-winning estate. Overall, production has increased per vine, and in 2019, their Cabernet Franc grape harvest doubled to about eight tonne. Leah Tebbett took a trip up north, where, at the bottom of an island attached by an umbilical cord directly onto State Highway 10, she found Kim. We're just... Slightly south of Manganui, which is in the far north, it's about halfway between Kirikiri and Kaitaia. We're on Paifenua Island, which you can reach by road because we, we do have the highway attached to it at the bottom. And as I came down, there's just rolling scenes of vineyard leading down to your place in the tasting room, which then looks over the harbour of, is it Doubtless Bay and across to Monganui? Well, it's Monganui, which goes out to the Doubtless Bay Harbour, yeah. It's picturesque. Yeah. (laughs) I can understand why you made the move from New Plymouth. Yeah, we absolutely love it up here. It's, It's just a wonderful place to be. Around a decade ago, Kim and husband Graham brought an old cottage at the base of the island. They sold the engineering business in Taranaki and started renovating, before realising in 2016 they'd completely moved in. Two years later, they brought the vineyard, which covers most of the island. I guess I was looking for something to do and uh, yeah it seemed like a really good opportunity and uh, it, it needed a little bit of TLC but we knew that the the wine that it produced was really good and it's about 12 hectares yeah we planted quite a bit of things but uh, originally it was probably about nine hectares in vines and and now we're sort of up to speed you said it needed a lot of TLC what, what was that about uh, well, it was planted in 2006 mostly uh, with some really interesting varieties of grapes. What was required, we've relocated um, quite a few of the vines so that they're more compact. We've made better use of the land and we've put in some new varieties as well. So our existing varieties were the Cabernet Franc, Tanat and Syrah for the reds and the Viognier, Arnis and Pinot Gris for the whites. And they're, yeah, they've grown really well and they're doing well. And we've planted some Chardonnay, some Gewurz and uh, some Chambersen, which is an up-and-coming Northland grape. 
Oh, really? What's mm. that about? It's a red grape, and it just really seems to like the climate here. It handles well. It makes a beautiful red wine. What's your favourite, then, of, of all those? <laughs> I don't have a favourite. <laughs> and people ask me that, and I say, well, it's just like choosing your children. They're all different, and um, they all, you know, they all have their own special qualities. In the five years that you've, you've had the vineyard, what have been the biggest challenges? Well, I guess the biggest challenge was just learning what you needed to do in the vineyard itself. We've been so lucky with the support that we've had from people in the industry here. We have a, a Northland Wine Growers Association and Rod McIver, he makes our wine for us and he's been great. Plus the people working in the vineyard are experienced and we've just, yeah, we've been lucky in that way. But just learning what you have to do so I signed up to the New Zealand Sustainable Wine Program early on and that's that was a huge benefit because they're quite particular about what they expect you to do as a grower and what you know how you how you regulate yourself but it also means that you put the right processes in place early on Uh, so that that was that was a huge learning curve. Was there any fear moving into something that you didn't know much about? Perhaps I should have been, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was just uh, it was an exciting time, and I guess we'd always been interested in wine. In my early early days, I'd I'd started a botany degree, so I guess that had always interested me. Yeah. It, come in handy, hopefully. Yeah, it has it has come in handy, so it's always been interesting. And actually, yeah, getting the getting everything right and just the science behind it's been really interesting. Being a farmer is a bit different to engineering because the weather in engineering is, it does make a difference, but not as much as being a farmer. So, you know, you you really do have to watch the weather all the time and you have to understand what's happening. And of course, we've had some interesting weather events over the last year or so. Mm. We had Cyclone Gabriel and, and earlier rain events in, in the beginning of the year. Did that affect the vineyard in any way? Uh, well, it did affect it, but we we were very lucky, and we count ourselves very fortunate because the the flowering and fruit set, uh, while the weather was a little inclement around that, it didn't seem to affect it as much as we thought it would. So we had good flowering and fruit set, and then uh, Cyclone Gabriel came along. We we knew it was coming, so we thought, well, we'd better pick our Pinot Gris because the Pinot Gris splits easily. And we left everything else on with our fingers crossed. And luckily for us, most of the rain went elsewhere and we sympathised with those that were severely affected. But uh, we actually managed to get some fine weather after that and, and our, our harvest was, was very good. We were, we were very happy with it. It is a very big stroke of luck really, isn't it? Yeah, it is a stroke of luck and... and some of it is nerves as well, so how long do you hang on with your fruit? Mm-hmm. And we we decided that we would just let it go and see what happened, and, and we were rewarded for that. So our reds particularly, you know, they take a little bit to ripen, but in the north we harvest a lot sooner than the rest of the country, so we're all over by mid-March really before others even start. So, yeah, it's a, it's a nail-biting time. In terms of the wine, some of the varieties have won some significant awards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been we've been very. Our Viognier 2020 won the New Zealand International Wine Show trophy for the Viognier. That was a huge accolade for us. We've gone on. We've got many five star vintages that have come through for our Viognier's, for our Tanat, our Cabernet Franc. 2021 uh, was second in the Wine Folio Single Varietal Challenge, and that was that was huge for us as well. There were some heavy hitters in all of these competitions, so yeah, it's it's exciting when you know that you can produce something that's up there with everybody else. Should we go have a look in the tasting room then? Okay, <laughs> let's do it. It must be something else living out here, and we probably would never want to leave, I'm guessing. It gets, it gets hard. Some days I think I really should actually just leave the property and go in, into town, which is Manganui, which is not a huge town, and it's lovely. So, yeah, I, you can just be here and, and get lost in it. And with the water too, you've got a landscape that changes every day, no doubt, depending on 
what's happening with the weather. Yeah, well, it does. And we're, we're very lucky. We've got lots of herons and sperm bulls and oyster catchers and that that, that, uh, that sit here and uh, you can sit and watch them. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just lovely. Speaking of birds, the name Dancing Petrel, where does that come from? Well, that comes from when we were out fishing and we needed a, a label because we... We bought the grapes of the Viognier originally without the vineyard, so we needed to have a label. And the little storm petrel dances around your boat, and it's it's like it doesn't touch the water. They call it the Jesus bird because it just looks like it walks on water, uh-huh. and and it's uh, it's really lovely. And so we thought, oh, a dancing petrel would be, yeah, a nice way to symbolise where where we're from. The tasting room is a small space just offset from the cottage. It's small, no doubt, as you want nothing more than to make use of the outdoor table and soak in that view. However, inside, lined neatly on a long slab bench, which was once resident in an old post office, is the assortment of wines decorated with the petrol. Gosh, there's a few, actually. More than I realised when you were listing them off. Yes, well, because... We use a, particularly our Cabernet Franc and our Viognier in a couple of different ways. So we have a sparkling Viognier and a sparkling rosé, which is a Cabernet Franc Viognier, both of which have been very well received. We also do a sparkling Cabernet Franc, which is a sparkling red, which is pretty unusual for New Zealand. And yeah, just because I really like sparkling reds, so I thought I'd give it a go. I agree on you with that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we have a late harvest Viognier. Uh, that originally occurred by accident because when we were picking the Viognier, there was quite a few left on the vine, so we just left them to, to see what happened. And uh, a month after, after picking, we picked them, and it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. So, so a happy accident there. Yeah, a happy accident. It came out as a five-star wine. So yeah, Oh, we, for goodness sake, a very happy accident. <laughs> yeah, we were very happy with that one. Mm-hmm. And, and you do a port, I can see, in the corner over here too. We do do a port, yeah. That's been going really well. The, the latest uh, port is Cabernet Franc, Syrah, and, and a little bit of Tanat in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's gone really well. And so people come obviously here to, to try the wines, but it must be hard to get them to leave because right behind us, we're looking out across to Monganui. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it is, it's, a, it's a very easy setting to get comfortable in. And yeah. uh, actually, that's the, I think that's the charm of it. I, I've made a lot of good friends from the tastings. Yeah, it, it's been lovely. Yeah, because the water's literally lapping at the end of, of the grassy bank, so... If you got really hot and, and needed to cool off and pop your feet in, I guess you could too. Well, absolutely, if you wanted to, yes. <laughs> in amongst the oyster beds that are down there. Yeah, so put your Crocs on, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just magical. Do you have any visions for how you could take this further after five years under your belt? We would like to expand our tasting room experience and, and we're looking at ways to do that now. We're slowly getting our wine further and further afield. It's it's in many of the restaurants in Northland, and uh, we we think that's wonderful. There will come a point where we where we don't want to get much bigger, and and that's probably getting getting close. We don't want to be a huge vineyard. We we like to be able to keep control of what we've got and and have that boutique flavour to it. Kim Gilkerson there of Dancing Petrol Vineyard and Wines, based across the harbour from Manganui Township. Now to the centre of the North Island in Taihapi's steep hill country, where farmers can't do without well-trained working dogs. Hi. Speak. Speak. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh you're gorgeous. You don't have to shout. You really don't. I mean, years ago, I've changed. Years ago, I used to shout a bit and rant and rave. She was trying to give you a kiss. I know she loves me. <laughs> she don't, They all love me if I sit down on the chair. They're all over me like a red. No, look, she's not supposed to do that. She's really not. But, um, yeah, I try to, if the dogs um, are close to me, I just speak very, very quietly. 
And, I'm, and I hear some people, they go to put their dogs away in the kennel and they're shouting, they're saying, behind, get up here, get in here, and they're shouting, and the dog's only a few feet away and the dogs don't come to the kennels and it's all a bit of a performance. Whereas I don't have to do that. They're usually there waiting for me and I say in a little quiet voice, Hope or something, and she'll come over and jump in the kennel. And that's just what they've been brought up with because they're only a few feet away. They've got fabulous hearing. If you shout at them when they're only a few feet away, what are you going to do when they're sort of half a mile away out in the paddock with the wind blowing? <laughs> I mean, you just cannot have that sort of volume. <laughs> hey, speak. Isn't she gorgeous? If you were a working dog, you'd certainly want to be living with Anna Holland. To say she loves dogs is a bit of an understatement. Would some farmers be surprised to hear that you cuddle your working dogs? No, they wouldn't be surprised that I do, (laughs) but they wouldn't do it. (laughs) That's the difference. Um, And and a lot of farmers and a lot of dog trialists and a lot of people will say you shouldn't pat your working dogs, you shouldn't touch them, you shouldn't pat them, let alone do what I do. And um, I say to that, and I'd love you to leave this in, crap, complete crap. You can cuddle them and love them and pat them and do all of that and they can still respect you and do what they're told. Mine do, most of the time. And I don't expect perfection. And I think this is where it's really, really sad because people expect total perfection from their dogs, particularly dog trialists. And um, nothing in life is perfect, but they want total, total, total perfection from their dogs. And in order to get that, The dogs' lives can be pretty bloody awful. And I think it's sad. So it used to be a shepherd? Yes, I did that for um, about 25 years. I left home when I was 17 and much to my parents' horror and left to work on the land. And I did it for years and years and years and years. Bored. It'd be quiet, bored. You were in the city too, you are a city girl. City girl, born and raised in the heart of Auckland and um, my parents spent a total fortune on my education and here I am covered in mud and none of it means a thing. So at 17 you left school to work on a farm. Yes. Where did you go? Um, Well I really, really wanted to go to uh, work on a sheep and beef farm but really difficult and I couldn't find a job in those days, because we're talking about a very, very long time ago, um, it was nothing to see women working on dairy farms. There was plenty of women working on dairy farms. There was plenty of people working in the racing industry with racehorses, but that's not what I wanted. But very, very few females working on sheep and beef farms. And any woman that was, was either helping dad or maybe helping her husband, possibly, or a brother or somebody, um, and not that seriously. They were sort of giving a bit of a hand. Most farmers' wives were wives and mothers, and they had beautiful gardens, and they had beautiful houses, and they did lots of fabulous cooking, and looked gorgeous, and they weren't required on the farm because there was plenty of farm workers on the farms in those days. Maybe the odd one did a bit of book work, but not usually. Um, They'd go out at docking time, perhaps drench a few lambs, and that was about their lot. But because times have changed so much, and um, there aren't the staff, people can't afford the staff, so wives have now become a huge, huge part of farming, way more than they've ever been apart from the war when they were land girls. So have you been treated along the way, being a, a woman in a man's world, really? <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> Just don't get me started. Some would say I've got a bit of a chip on my shoulder as a result. No, I haven't really, but it was... Um, really 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 difficult nobody wanted to employ a woman men just didn't think a woman could do the work so they didn't want to employ you the wives didn't want their men working with a woman so you 
were looking for a job on a sheep and beef farm, but you couldn't find one. Couldn't find one. So I went and worked on a dairy farm for six months. And I actually really, really enjoyed that. It was a um, a Jersey stud in Waihee, and I was there for six months. They had uh, racehorses, so that was rather fun. I took my horse with me there. Uh, there weren't in those days weekends off, it was seven days a week, things were very different, though the odd time we used to, on a gorgeous day, we'd pack a couple of fishing rods, Barry and I, and we'd turtle off and sit on the rocks and catch snapper, which was really, really good, there was good fishing in those days from the rocks. And all the time were your parents hoping you'd get it out of your system? Totally. <laughs> Completely and utterly, and ever since I was about five years old, um, because this, how it happened was, we used to go down to a relative's farm in the wire wrapper once a year and I used to potter around with the animals and things and then when I was big enough to ride a horse he had borrowed a pony from the neighbour and sat a sheepskin on it plunked me on the top and took me around the lambing beach and he used to call me his little land girl and I loved this absolutely totally loved it people used to say to you as they do when you're young and at school and various things they'd say and what are you going to do when you grow up Anna and I'd, I'm going to be a land girl and everybody used to roll their eyes um, and people used to say to my parents, don't worry, she will grow out of it. Well, I never did, and I used to dream about it, and every wish I made was wishing for a horse or a dog, and every time I cut a birthday cake or blew out a candle, it was always the same wish. <laughs> but the old thing, like the book, The Secret, you get what you want and what you plan for, and it's all happened. Everything, everything I've ever really, really wanted to happen has happened. And now you have 11 dogs? 11 dogs, yes, hopefully get the numbers down shortly, one to go this afternoon. And your business now is training people to train dogs? Yes, Um, that's a bit of a long story. Shall I just let the dogs out so they can have a run round while we stand and chat? They'll be desperate. They're desperate. (laughs) And it just seems, when they're sitting in their kennel they could be having a chew on a bone. Hope, get them behind, don't chase the pet sheep. Oh, there's so much to say. <laughs> you never thought you were going to get this, did you? <laughs> the long story Anna mentioned began when she started breeding and training dogs again about five years ago. She had a couple of lovely pups ready for new owners. And then I thought, I'm going to have to sell these dogs to somebody. And it brought back all the memories of dreadful things I've seen with dogs. Appalling houses, um, appalling feeding people who don't know how to train them, work them, look after them. And I thought, oh, these poor dogs. I need to do something. I need to train people. I need to teach people, not so much the dogs. So Anna decided to write articles for a country paper. That led to running a few training sessions for dog owners close to home. And then before she knew it, she was on the ferry to the South Island to run training sessions there. I took three dogs with me. Ash, the one that is for sale and hopefully goes today. I took Chloe and Hope with me. I had my single horse float on with five lovely quiet sheep. And stretcher, Gordon's sleeping bag, all the things that I need and require, and set off. And it was a lot of fun. And I can remember, oh, I'm getting a little lump in my throat, because it was quite emotional. And I'm sitting out there in the line to go on the ferry and I was just thinking how fabulous is this what a huge undertaking and how exciting and then I went into the bar after we were all on and all settled in went into the bar got myself a bottle of bubbly and it was about I don't know 10 o'clock in the morning and I sat down and toasted myself and the trip and had a lovely wee drink (laughs) and it went very well it was a great great trip very successful So what about a few tips for the owners of farm dogs? I I personally think that really you shouldn't start training a dog until it's really about 12 months old. And um, let it be a pup. Okay, a well-mannered pup. But allow it to be relaxed. Allow it to have a little bit of fun. Allow it to be happy. And a lot of people, oh, I'd hate to be their pup. You know, they're not allowed to do anything. They've got to be so good and so well behaved and you mustn't bark unless you're told to and you must, mustn't run around and play and you must be so sensible all the time 
And I think this is the reason why a lot of people have trouble getting their young, young dogs started on stock and interested. All the time, they've made them be so good, they've made them walk at heel, not run in front, not have a play, not be relaxed, and then they think, okay, well, let's see if they're interested in stock, and they take them out to where some sheep are, and the dog's too terrified to walk in front, too terrified to go and do anything, because it's never been allowed to. So therefore, it doesn't go. It won't go. She says you can start instilling manners in a pup from a very young age. If it's a little wee pup and it's about eight or ten weeks old and it's jumping up on me, I'll go, grr, no, and I'll push it down. Or I might give it a little tap on the nose, grr, no. And every time it does something wrong that I don't want it to do, I'll growl at it and I might clap my hands or I'll have a rolled up newspaper and I'll just give it a little bit of a whack with a rolled up newspaper. Now the rolled up newspaper doesn't hurt but it gives it a fright, equivalent to a dog snapping at a pup. I don't have a problem with people shouting and ranting and raving or whatever. Where I have the problem is with people beating their dogs. Um, and that does happen. Oh, look, does that happen. It happens appallingly. There's some very, 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 very cruel people out there. And then there's the subject of food. Feed your dog according to the condition of the dog and what it's doing. Too many people feed the same amount of food every day regardless. Then they wonder why there's times their dogs are fat and then they wonder why the dogs are thin. It's, it's ridiculous. You feed according to what the dog is doing. Some people have um, this stupid idea that um, dogs should be fed every other day. It is a ludicrous, ludicrous thought that was around years ago. And it's complete and utter rubbish. Anna, what other dreadful things do you see? (laughs) (laughs) Or do you hear about the way people treat their dogs? Oh, look. We can't really walk when I talk because I can only do one thing at a time. Um... (laughs) Water troughs or water containers that dogs have. Some of them are just disgraceful, like you wouldn't believe. Filthy. Filthy, 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 filthy. And they might get topped up with a bit of water occasionally. But what a lot of... Look, I was at some place and one chap, you know, he had a couple of dogs that used to go to the toilet in their water bowl. And he'd say, oh, the bloody dog, if it does that, it's its own problem. It can bloody drink it. Well, how stupid is that? In the wild, a dog is loose. It does not go to the toilet where it sleeps and where it eats. It goes away. We confine them with chains and kennels. They have nowhere to go. They have to go to the toilet there if they need to go. If their water container's there, as they're turning around in little circles to go to the toilet, they don't think, if I perch here, that poo's going to land right in that water. Dogs don't think like that. And then the dog in the next kennel, if he's a male dog, he'll cock his leg. He's not thinking, well, if I cock it here, oh, it's going to go into my mate's water, I better not. He's just going to cock his leg, and it's going to go in there, through no fault of the dog's. What I would like to see in an ideal world would be for farmers to get up in the morning, regardless of what they're doing, go and let their dogs out for a bit of a run, just for five minutes, no point opening the door, letting them out and two seconds later pulling them back again. It takes a wee while to go to the toilet. It takes a wee while for your bowels to get moving. So a five or a ten minute run to go to the toilet. While they're doing that, Give the kennels a bit of a clean if it needs cleaning. Empty out the water bowls. Play with a pup if you've got a pup there. And put your dogs away, etc. Feed the dogs once a day. Whatever the dogs need or require. Have them in kennels that are, that are, that are warm in the winter, cool in the summer. Plant a deciduous tree, a couple of trees in front of the kennels. So that in the winter, when there aren't any leaves on it, the dogs are getting sun. And in the summer, there's a ton of shade for the dogs. Just just logical things. Who are we need out now? 
won't let you have my dolly. Dolly out. Dolly's quite sweet. She's only young, and I'll train her up before too long. She's very, very noisy. Oh, she's gonna drop the bone in the water. Now I can't stand that. See, and a lot of people wouldn't notice that. They wouldn't notice the bone in the water. They'd leave it there, and then it putrefies the water, and the dog hasn't got nice water. So that's why you need to keep them clean. Get the bones out so they don't rot in the water and foul it, and um, give it a scrub. Keep a keep a scrubbing brush at your kennels for your pools. We've been talking about some farmers who don't treat their working dogs very well, but you also must see some lovely people coming through. Oh, you through. do. This is a gorgeous story. The other day I went to pick up a dog, and I had a bit of time up my sleeve, so I called into a cafe to have a cup of coffee. And I'm sitting there, and a chap came in, and he is obviously a farmer because they stand out like sore toes, and he came in. And I went out just before he went out, and I looked across and I thought, oh, that's his vehicle because there weren't any others there. So, And there was two beautiful looking dogs on the back, a heading dog and a hunt away. And their coats were shiny as shiny and they were well fed. And they were just sitting. They were tied up, admittedly, but they were sitting there very relaxed. They weren't barking. They weren't wound up. They were very relaxed, happy, content dogs. Oh, I get a lump in my throat. And he came out and I thought to myself, I bet you walk over there and give them a pat. And I watched, and he walked over to the heating dog, and he had his little sweet that he'd been given with his cup of coffee and gave it to his heating dog. <laughs> and I wish there was more things like that. I just knew by the look of the man and the look of the dogs that he was going to do something nice, and he did. I'd imagine that you must be quite fussy who you sell dogs to. Very. <laughs> Very. We have long conversations, and I'm getting worse and worse at it. Um, we have long conversations. I ask them lots and lots of questions and do the best I can, but it's really difficult because you cannot drive for miles and go and view a farm where, there's, where a pup is going to go. If I know that someone mistreats their dogs, they do not get a dog or a pup off me. And I can remember one time... I've actually, it's been quite a few occasions when this has happened and somebody has said to me, oh Anna, I'd like one of your pups. And I've said, no, you're not getting one. Why not? Because you don't look after your dogs. What? Don't look after them? No, you don't. And so they don't get one. Well, Burke Olsen hopes he will. Really nice to meet you at last. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is Carol. Hey, Hello, Carol. you've been talking about me. Hello. This and is Father Peter. Hello, Peter. Hi, Hello. Peter. How are you? Good, good, good. Well, what we'll do... Burke's driven from Hawke's Bay to Taihape with a view to taking one of Anna's young dogs home. So I'll go and get Ash... Then I'll grab that handful, of, there's a handful of sheep just up on this little bit here. I'll pull them down, I'll get my ropes and poles and things, and then show you what I think you should do when you get him home. Then we can do it at the top of the hill and we can go muss that big paddock that I did Sounds the other good. day. Sounds good. Hope he goes well. Sounds good. <laughs> okay, I'll go and get my gear. So you're after a dog? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we've been, I've got, had a dog for about, oh, well we're, we're farming in Central Walks Bay, my old dog's about 10, so it's time to replace him, and, and um, I saw Anna's ads, I searched her on the internet actually, and found it there, so we, um, I just talked, rang her up, talked her on the phone, and she had this dog available, so. She doesn't sell dogs to anyone, you know that. No, I know that, <laughs> I know that, <laughs> and I got an interview as well, which was fine, but that's good, that's good, bit of pride in what you do, that's what it's all about. So we breed, you know, stud cattle and we're the same with our bulls. You've got a bit of pride in where they go and what they're doing. So, so what are you looking for in a dog? Nature. A nice a nice nature and, and um, I want an easy a dog that's easy to work. I'm not a really good dog person, so if he wants to or got a fair idea of what he wants to do, well that helps my job a fair bit. So he doesn't have to be too fast, but faster than me. <laughs> so what sort of cattle do you have? Pold Herefords, yeah, Pold Herefords, and, and predominantly Romdale ewes. So. Left! I don't think you'll get through the fence. Sit! Sit! Left! Sit! Left! No! Ash! Listen to me. See how he just dropped down then? Yep. So that's what you do. If he's been cocky and smart, point at him. Ash! Listen! And he'll behave himself. He's, yeah, he's right down there, <laughs> isn't he? He knows, he knows what all his commands mean. He does them most of the time. Um, if he doesn't, it's not because he's disobedient. It's because he's either confused 
or he'd just love to do that. Yeah. You know, like yesterday when I went with that, if he'd got up from his stay position, it was only because he wanted to be with me. But he didn't. Yeah, yeah. But that's why. Not because I want to be bad. It's I yeah. want to be with you. He's a good, he's an easy dog. Yeah, yeah. He's a very easy dog. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that if he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not like that. Ash, stay. Stay. So anyway, we'll pull those under there. And I'll get another one and I'll show you what it is. She talks Careful. so quietly to him. She's good, yeah, it's good. But he's Careful. just natural, you know, he just wants to do it, doesn't he? So he's just so loyal to her, that's the amazing one. Just, so you'd be your job to get him totally to be that loyal to you. Totally to Anna, isn't he? He's just amazing. That's so scary. <laughs> so you're quite interested in him? Yeah, well, he's just quite a nice, friendly looking dog, so I, yeah. So for you, temperament's pretty important in a dog. Oh, friend. You know, they've got to be your mate. So they spend a bit of time with you, so, uh, well, 10 years with you, so I think that's really important. That's nice so. to hear, because a lot of people say, a lot of people say, oh, they're just a tool. They're yeah, like I a know. hammer. But I had him well. He'd been well critiqued on the phone. <laughs> Anna Holland and Burke Olsen. And we heard later from Burke that Ash turned out to be both capable and adorable. That story was produced by Carol Stiles and recorded in 2010. Hi, this is Graham. And I'm Gillian. We're from Miners Camp in Endeavour Inlet, and you're listening to Country Life RNZ National. Now we're heading to Alistair and Jenna Bird's farm near Oxford in North Canterbury. Cosmo was there earlier this week to record the final episode of A Year on the Farm, the series he's been making with the couple over the past 12 months. The last time I was here was in mid-August, I think, and you were at the start of lambing. What's been happening since? Yeah, welcome back. Mid-August, long time ago. Uh, yeah, so we, we'd finished lambing at the lease block down there, so our early lambing, they've all been tailed, and we got a good result from there, so yeah, pretty happy with that. Those lambs coming through through that block, and, and most of them will be gone before Christmas. Um, so they're on track there. Um, up here on the hills, yeah, we're probably halfway through lambing up here. We lamb a bit later because we're a bit higher, and luckily the snow that they forecast a couple of weeks ago never eventuated, so um, we didn't eventuate to March. We had a wee skiff, but not um, not a huge dump like they were suggesting, so mm. that's a positive. And, yeah, we've only got about 10% left uh, of cows left to calve too, so... Well on our way for finishing all that. Um, just waiting for the grass to grow really at the moment, yeah. Mm. Now when we were driving up the track to get to the top of the hill here, I saw some poles in the ground. Uh, it looks like you've been doing some tree planting. Yeah, got my uh, gym work in there for a week, planting 100 poplar poles. So we got them through a scheme called the SCAR program, working with ECAN to stop hill country erosion. Um, it's it's the first time it's been in the Waimakariri district as a funding option for us uh, hill country farmers so pretty excited to jump onto that bandwagon and they subsidise the, ECAN subsidise the poles and then we just got to go out there and plant them. Um, so we've signed up for another couple of hundred next winter so I'll get my exercise in there yeah. as well. Alistair, what can we see around us here because the view is quite spectacular. Yeah, um, so starting off to our left over here in the cloud, normally you would see um, Amberley, or you'd see the sea out near Amberley, and you can see the ships going into Littleton actually way out there. And then you come around and Christchurch, the Port Hills will be in the distance. Um, Pretty cool up here at night because you see the irrigator lights, especially in the summer. They're all flashing away on the ground and then the stars up above, so the contrast is pretty cool, yeah. Um, Swinging round, we we can't see Oxford because there's a hill in the way. And then over this side there's the big Fonterra plant at Darfield. You'll see like Mount Hutt in the distance and Mount Torless and um, Portis Pass and things like that, yeah. Some amazing views, yeah. And it's surprisingly chilly and windy up here. Yeah, it's been pretty cold um, these last couple of weeks. We had a, had a good start to the autumn, spring, sorry, and then, yeah, came in pretty cold and the grass has stopped growing, so we, we're tight for feed, but I think um, we're getting closer and closer to summer, so it'll warm up. Now, pretty much all around us, we can see sheep and a few cattle. Do you normally have them grazing together? Yeah, we do, yep. Um, different 
times of the year they'll they'll graze together so at this point we've got some ewes that are set stocked in paddocks to lamb and then we can manage the feed, the amount of grass that's in those paddocks. If there's too much, we can just put, say, five cows and calves in there as they calve, and then we can shuffle them around the farm just to make sure that the grass doesn't get away and become rank or um, lose quality. On one of the hills near us, there's quite a bit of gorse. I guess that's quite good shelter for, you know, for the sheep in particular. Yep, that's one positive way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is good lambing shelter. Um, yeah, the the gorse has grown hugely over the last three years, just with the wet summers that we've had. It's just amazing if we could only gain some income out of gorse, we'd be rich. But uh... I even researched if there was such a thing as gorse perfume, because <laughs> I love the scent of gorse. It's like a honey vanilla scent, uh, but no, apparently not. There's all reasons why it's absolutely useless as an essential oil or as anything like that. So I abandoned that idea pretty quickly. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. Yeah. <laughs> You're right though, with the shelter, it's just a balance. Like too much and there's no feed because they take over. The gorse takes over. But undoubtedly that's, you know, they get in there. They It's amazing shelter. You watch them over here that even the lambs are just behind tiny little pretty much dead gorse bushes. And it's just enough to keep them out of the wind and... The, the contour of the land is, is good too. They find their little spots. It always amazes me how good they are at getting out of the wind when I would have thought that that would be quite cold there, but no. Yeah, it's that natural survival instinct they've got. Yes. Always look for that point of shelter. Yeah. Yep, exactly. What have been some of the challenges you've faced over the past um, several weeks? Yeah, things have been ticking along quite well. Um, water supply probably is, is one of the big ones. So with the dry spell that we had... Um, well, the, the dry spell a couple of weeks ago before this cold set in. Um, the cows were calving, all the ewes were on the, the farm water s- supply um, and then we just didn't make sure the intake was quite going well enough so we ran out of water so then it's a bit of a frantic thing to set the pump up and get some, get some water flowing again but we've got all that sorted so that's good because that clean water will definitely affect the production you know um, mm. the ewes and the cows milking ability and things like that so it's quite important mm. yep. and Jenna have you been out on the farm much over the past several weeks or have you been um, in the classroom yeah last I think maybe last time I talked to you I was just at the end of a back injury that really put me out over the worst time of the year <laughs> so Alice did manage to juggle everything um, I was flat out for four weeks at least, maybe it was six weeks, I'm not sure. And then I couldn't teach either. So every week I'd say, yep, I'll be back, and then realise I wasn't quite there yet. So once I got over that, I did quite a bit of relieving and release teaching and absolutely loved that. And, yeah, I'm going back this term. They've got a week that they need me to fill in, and um, they're letting me do wool. So (laughs) I'm quite excited about that. Or sheep, wool, all that kind of stuff. So the science, the properties of it, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that's great. I guess um, a lot of the kids around here will know quite a bit about sheep already. You'd think so. There's not many sheep farmers left. Some do, yeah. But um, they're all country kids that are keen to learn, Mm. and that's all you need. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Alistair, you've got your own Kiwi Farmer YouTube channel. How's that going? Because I remember you said you were doing one or two videos a week. Yeah, it's, it's going really well. We're still growing. Subscriber numbers are growing. Yeah, trying, still aiming for the two a week. So some weeks I hit my target and some weeks I don't. It's, yeah, some days you just don't feel like picking up a camera. And No, it's it's going really well. One thing that's, that struck me recently is the number of kids that watch it. Like primary age kids, just they've got a love of farming and, and obviously they just, yeah, they love the content. And... So I suppose the whole reason I started the channel was I didn't feel like there were everyday farmers putting what they do out there, all the good work that we do as farmers. So how we do look after the environment, how we're conscious of waterways, the technology and the science that's involved behind the decisions that we make on farm. So that was the kind of reason for starting is just to promote New Zealand farmers and promote our story, just trying to do our bit. And then, yeah, obviously with the number of kids and stuff that are watching it, just trying to promote agriculture as a career pathway as well for young people. 
Now this um, is the last episode of the series we've been doing because we've covered a whole year. What would you like to say to our listeners? Oh, um, oh, just firstly, thanks very much for tuning in and listening. And, and then, of course, thanks for those people who have followed us on social media and um, who continue to follow our journey. Uh, it's it's amazing and humbling to to see the messages from people who listen to the, the Country Life program. You always get quite a few people, especially through other family members, saying, "Oh, you know, we heard them," and it's 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 yeah, it's, it's really nice um, to show that we that we're yeah reaching a few people and trying to trying to make a difference. So, thank you for for tuning in. And uh, what are your long term plans? What are your goals for the future for the farm here? Oh, we jokingly say this, but it's not really a joke, um, and it's just to be here for another another couple of years. Yeah, so that's kind of how tight things are in the egg industry at the moment. Is is we just we want to be here in two years' time, type thing. So yeah, the the farm will probably look quite different in five years' time. So there'll be more trees, with pretty much jumping into every opportunity that we can. Um, we're up here at the Hill House, so with our on-farm accommodation, so that'll try and ramp up, get a few more people coming in, staying up here. And then, yeah, we're just currently always looking at different opportunities as well. So, yeah, we're still kind of focusing on our bread and butter, which is sheep and beef production. But, yeah, all these other little fringes around the outside certainly help help the overall profitability of the farm too. Alistair Bird there. Cosmo was also talking to Jenna Bird atop a hill on their farm that sits between Oxford and the Ashley Gorge. To find Alistair's video channel, just go to YouTube and search Kiwi Farmer NZ. And we'll put a link to that on the Country Life webpage too. Kakite Ano. Have a great weekend. Catch you next time. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.